Thanks again. In the first service, and I'm going to do it again. I don't care if I embarrass you, buddy. I want to give a little history. Uh, I met Ian, I think, out at Silver Star, because all the skiers used to go to Silver Star for training in the fall. And Ian was wrestling whether he should come out and, and do his full-time training in Camelot or not. And then so he met this Christian guy, and he said, yeah, you can live in my basement. So for three years, so ever since then, he's been a big brother to my daughters. And now he's one of the elders of the church. So um, I'm quite proud of him because I actually am subjecting him now as my elder. So anyway, uh, I wanna, I'm excited about sharing with the parables too because they're the teachings of Jesus. I mean, our Savior told the multitudes what he wanted them to hear, and we get to hear it too. And so directly from you know his, his mouth, his words, as Luke started to share with us. So I'm excited about that. But today I want to ask the question, have you ever thought about what your funeral would be like? I don't want to be too sad and macabre this morning, but sometimes if we think about that, it might change the way we live our lives today. I mean, um, do you wonder what will be said at your funeral? Or will there even be one? My Aunt Dawn, uh, I was talking to my Uncle Ray, Aunt Dawn passed away a couple of months ago, and and the family doesn't do funerals. I thought, oh, but wait, you should rethink that because it's always important to celebrate the gift of God, of a life. And it's important to, to, to memorialize that person, the contribution they made. And anyway, um, there's one person I read about. He said, my goal is to have at least one person at my funeral not look at their watch the entire time. <laughs> and then what phrases do you think will encapsulate your life? You know, my daughter one year in school, they had a little button that said, my dad rocks. And you know, maybe she heard me playing my electric guitar too many times at the basement or something. I don't know. Maybe um, what phrase would encapsulate your, your life? Maybe they'd say, well, she could. Or in camera, we get a lot of guys, that people that they're, they're hammered. You know, they're trained hard. So nothing um, more maybe than an epitaph on a tombstone um, highlights that. It's not even a full sentence long. What do you think will be on your tombstone? Let me read you a couple weird ones. John Strange was a British attorney, and he had this on his. John Strange, here lies an honest lawyer, and that is strange. And then this, this next is kind of weird. I don't understand, but a long time ago, there's a cook. She fell asleep over her hot burning stove, and she died. And they weren't too smart when they did it. Hers, maybe. She said, uh, good, well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> and another one, uh, here, here's resting uh, my dearest wife, Queen Hilda Gallamonte. Lord, please welcome her with the same joy I sent her to you. <laughs> and then Panacrazio Juvenales said, he was a good husband, a wonderful father, but a bad electrician. <laughs> So at the parable we're going to look at today, um, at this time, Jesus was still the hot ticket. I mentioned that, well, Sean mentioned that last week, and I mentioned it two weeks ago. We're going to be in Luke chapter 12, if you follow along in a Bible or a phone or whatever. But let me just read the first verse. It said, under these circumstances, after so many thousands of the multitude had gathered together that they were stepping on one another, he began saying to his disciples. So let me just p picture the scene a little bit here. So the Greek word there is miraado, which means myriads. 
You know, the, that word mirado is described as the, the, the heavenly scene in Revelation. And so in Revelation, it said myriads upon myriads, 10,000 upon 10,000. So at least there's 10,000 people here, probably. I mean, that's a huge crowd. I'm thinking, how does Jesus project his teachings to the people? I mean, he must have been yelling, shouting. I don't know. I could never have done it. But then it also says there's another concept here. There's a Greek word, kakapateo, which means... Um, really means tread, to tread down, to tread upon something. So my New American Standard version, I hope you don't mind if I come from an NAS, old habits die hard, but it said stepping upon one another. So they were clamoring to get closer to Jesus, to, to hear him. They, they, they wanted to hear what, what Jesus had to say. And it's interesting because in Jesus' life and ministry, it kind of went from people were interested and then maybe not so much and curious, and then to downright hostile, if you, you know, see the progression through, through, the, through Luke especially here. So you have so many people. In the midst of all this craziness, we see in verse 13, someone comes up to him, in verse 13 he says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. So this is what kind of precipitates the parable. You know, family inheritance squabbles have done so much damage to families through the years. And in my family, we were more like this. I don't want it, you take it. No, I don't want it, you take it. So we had our own issues, but everybody, every family's probably got their own issues. But in the law of that day, um, the older brother received two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger brother a third. I'm not sure about what the, the sisters got. I don't know, maybe nothing. But anyway, um, if this man had been following Jesus and, and learning and going through his teachings, he probably would have said to his other brother, you take two-thirds. And the other brother said, no, you take two-thirds. Let's go to Jesus and figure this out. And Jesus would say, guys, both give it all away. And they go, great answer. <laughs> if they've been following his teachings. So, but anyway, Jesus launches into our parable. So I'm going to start reading at verse 15 of chapter 12 and go through to verse 21. But Jesus said this. He said, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even one that has an abundance does his life consist of the possessions. And he told him a parable, saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I will do now. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come, Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? And so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So last week we saw a quote from famous missionary Jim Elliott. Um, he is no fool who gives and cannot keep to gain that which you cannot lose. I've heard that for 50 years, and I don't know if it's penetrated my heart yet. I don't know about you guys. Let me read it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You know, years ago, one of my favorite movies, my family doesn't like my taste in movies, but there's a movie, Steve Martin, I think it was his first movie, came out with a movie called The Jerk. You guys remember the movie The Jerk? So he invents some crazy thing on eyeglasses, overnight success, multi-multi-millionaire, 
lawsuit comes along, loses it all. So his on-screen wife, played by Bernadette Peters, which is also his off-screen wife, she says this. She says, it's not the money, it's the stuff. I love that line. You guys are laughing. I love that line. It's not the money, it's the stuff. And, and it's true. It's the stuff. You know, and I have a Camar garage. Maybe I shared this before, but I've gotten my car into it one time just to see if I could do it. You know, too many skis. When you enjoy my house, you have 50 pairs of skis. <laughs> Top level skier and four bikes. And I probably had the same. And so it's a full, and so we, we, we wrestle with this. And I'll talk more about this in, in, in a bit. But um, there's two main points we're going to look at today. And I love it how Pastor Sean, when, when he preaches, he tells us when we look at Bible, we want to look at what the main message was, who the hearers were, what they're going through, and what was the message to them. And then we glean from that what's the message to us. So the message is, verse 15, be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of these possessions. So your life does not consist of what you own. You are not what you have. And the second point, um, make it your, so is the man, verse 21, so is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So we want to make it a priority to be rich towards God. And that's not easily defined. We're going to try to tackle that today. So years ago, I took a class from a well-known theologian named Howard Hendricks, and he'd have this line where he'd say, too convicting, let's move on. Well, today, as I preach, I think I'm going to, I'm not going to say it again, but I'm going to feel that. <laughs> too convicting, I'm going to be convicting myself. Let's move on. So you might be thinking, okay, I'm not rich. In Canmore, we, folks, we are in a bubble. If you live up in Three Sisters, you could have as your neighbor, Alice Cooper. They're in some, he said this classic rock program. And, and he, I'd listen to it once in a while, he'd send broadcasting to from Canada. Actually, he's broadcasting from Three Sisters, Canmore, Alberta. And if you live up in Silverchip, um, one of my favorite groups growing up musically was the Eagles. And Don Felder, their lead guitarist, he had a place up there. And, and when Alec Baldwin was filming the movie The Edge, his wife at the time, probably, Kim Basinger bought him out. So these movie stars, you know, they're rich and famous. You never see them, but they're here. You see them fancy places. And my, my own neighbor, um, those of you who know, I live in the Peaks, modest neighborhood, uh, but my neighbor loved nice cars. One day he had his Lamborghini and his Bentley parked in the, in the driveway. And I just say, Don, let me get a picture of you and your cars. You know, Hey, Steve, want to take one for a spin? I'm like, no way. <laughs> I was too scared to do that. But um, living in Camel, you can think, wow, I am so poor. But let me ask this. Do you own a car? You know, the week before Christmas, both of my young daughters that were here in the first service, they bought themselves cars. Both of them were nicer than our cars. <laughs> and, and we live, you know, in a nice neighborhood, four of us in a house, uh, four cars. Well, if you own a car... You're only part of the 9% richest people in the world. You know, one year when I graduated from university, I went over to Uganda and worked in a coffee and tea plantation to help rehabilitate it. And where I was staying, the, the chief was away. But they're talking about the chief. 
He's an important guy. Fact, he's got a car. And so a couple days later, the chief rolls up in his car, heard him coming a mile away. The tailpipe was hanging by a wire. There's an old rusty Honda. I thought the thing was going to fall apart. We would never pass inspection in Canada. But you realize, oh, I'm living in the Wild West where I live. And so verse 15, Jesus says to be on guard for your heart. The word there is philosophy. And the Greek word, which basically means like, like a, a guard at a prison, kind of watching over, or maybe a, a soldier who's guarding something very valuable, philosophy. So it's what a guard our hearts. So it remains safe. You know, the office is to guard our hearts against every form of greed. And, and so I began to think, okay, every form of greed. How many forms of greed are there? I don't even know. I mean, but there's probably plenty. I, I, I came up with four this week. Did a little web search, you know, as we do. So I got four of them. The first one is, is the hoarder. Now I got to say, um, my wife's elbows are probably as sharp as Gordie Howe's. He was known for his elbowing. And so as I go through these, I'm kind of glad I'm standing up here, not sitting next to my wife. I'm afraid I get the Gordie Howe elbow. First one, hoarder. Greed in the life of the hoarder leads them to believe that they can't be generous with his money till they set aside enough to be comfortable themselves. Um, they trust money rather than God for their future. Number two form of greed possibly is overspender. Form of greed, it's, it's a bit of an impatient person. Um, they confuse needs with wants at times. And as a result, they spend more than they should, more than their income allows. Again, too convicted, yes, we know. Okay, number three, comparison. It's the sense that it's imperative to match the lifestyle of somebody else. Now, trust me, I'm not going to go out and buy a Bentley or a Lambo, as you say, because I can't do that. <laughs> but the, the need to comparison and keep up. And then fourthly, it's entitlement, form of greed. The sense that somebody um, perhaps owes you something. An entitled person believes that I don't have the money for it, so somebody else should buy it for me because I deserve to have it without having to work for it. And it is the mistaken idea that the greedy people are the rich ones. But you know what? That's not true. That summer when I was in Uganda, I saw more materialism in my whole life. They lusted after shoes and a metal roof. But you might think, well, they should have those things, and they should, really. But I mean, just the degree of materialism was a whole nother, another level. And I realized you can't escape it. It doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor, materialism and greed, it's always there. So Jesus said, be on guard with your heart for every form of greed. I'm sure we can come up with some more. But Canmore, North America in general, it's a dangerous place to live. If you think about it, I mean, 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. I read that in King James Version. I like that version. But most of us are afraid of poverty. But you know, folks, maybe we should be more afraid. I think we should be more afraid of wealth, actually. So we need to guard our hearts, keep a sentry around it. So let's look at the rich pair, the, the rich farmer. You might be thinking, um, so Al, you're an American business. Rich farmer, does such a thing even exist? <laughs> you know, farmers, I think they're operating on like a 5 to 6% margin of, of, of error. And so they can have a bad weather year. Uh, or, or whatever, it, it could be just catastrophic fun. But now we're in an agrarian society. So you see that a rich farmer, um, well, let me, let me throw out this statement. You've probably heard this statement. 
He cl- uh, Rich Feynman, he, claim- he climbed the ladder of success only to find it leaning against the wrong building. Have you guys heard that? Yeah, you've been around a long time. Um, I've had athletes have the privilege of getting to the top at a younger age. We had a Bible study once many years ago in our home in Calgary, and we had three Olympic gold medalists, and two of them were double gold medalists, and none of them were over the age of 25. So their ladder of success was at the very top, and you realize, oh, it's not really satisfied. But it might take a businessman or a farmer the whole life to climb to the top of that ladder before he realizes, ooh, the ladder's on the wrong side of the building. So it's interesting, it, it won't satisfy. So our farmer, as Jesus said here, was blessed with fertile ground. He had good soil. And he had a good work ethic. He put a lot of work into that fertile ground. So he was the financial success. He was so successful that he had a hard time managing all, all the, the, the crops and the produce. So in the world's eyes, he looked like a great success. But what did Jesus say about him? He said he was a fool because um, all of his accomplishments were gone instantly, just like that. You know, um, let me just ask, where are we on this? You know, we strive to be successful, but it can be taken away so fast. Do you think much about your future life in heaven? Maybe it's because I'm getting older now. I do a lot, because our life is so short now, and eternity is so long, and we want the best eternal experience possible, don't we? You know, we, Jesus said there's rewards in heaven, there's roles and responsibilities in heaven, and so, and, and, and it's going to be, I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be good, and the things that we do in this life do impact our eternal life. So we should be thinking about what's going to go on in heaven, and how can I best prepare in this life for that longer life, not just this little blip of time, but, but the big, the big long period of time. We should think about that. You know, do you have a plan for that? Do you have a plan for your pursuit of God? You know, we plan our careers and our education. We plan our training. We plan our vacations. Um, but do you plan how to best connect with God and get close to Him? Do you have a plan? Maybe a Bible reading. We have a Bible reading plan in the back. That's, that's one way to do that. There's all kinds of ways we can do that. And so in verse 20, if you look at this, there's a sense of obligation to the fun. And it says, this very night, your soul is what? It's required. Your soul is required. And this is the language of obligation. The man owed his life. He owed his livelihood. He owed his wealth to God. He even owned his very soul to God. And it was required of him. Every day was a gift. And it's obligated for him to, to give back to God. It's true of everyone. It's true of us. We have an obligation to give back to God. The rich farmer. It's interesting. If you look at the pronouns here, he says, my crops, my barns, my goods, my soul, everything to him was about him. But God proved that in the end, nothing was his. It was all God's. Let's look at the second teaching point of Jesus. As I said in verse 21, to, to be rich towards God. How do we become rich towards God? That's not an easy concept. How do we make it pri- a priority to be rich with God versus the riches of the world. Now, the last couple of years, um, there's been a lot of insecurity in our lives. We've taken for granted so, for so many years health, freedoms, political stability, world political stability, our jobs, economic stability, cultural cohesion. 
But if these things haven't been pulled out from under us, they're threatened right now in many ways. And there's other things too. And so a lot of that security is gone. But if we treasure worldly things, we're living in insecurity. But if we treasure God and heavenly things, we're living securely. Because even if it's gone, we're still good. We're still happy. We're still okay. So how do we make God our treasure? I want to take us back to an Old Testament passage. Some people avoid the Old Testament because it's too weird. And I understand that. Some people avoid the Old Testament prophets because they're strange. Like uh, Ezekiel. Let me just, God told Ezekiel to lay on one side for almost a year. I'm sure he had breaks. But and then so that time was over. Okay, Ezekiel, other side. And the message was for every day he lied on that side, that's how many years the nation is going to be in captivity. <clears throat> and that's kind of strange. Well, it doesn't end there. Jeremiah 13. <clears throat> Let me just read this. This is what the Lord says to Jeremiah. Go and buy yourself a linen undergarment. Put it around your waist. Do not put it in water. So I bought the undergarment in accordance with the word of the Lord. I put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, take that undergarment that you bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the crevice of a rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord had commanded me. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, take from there the undergarment which I commanded you to hide there. Then when I went to the Euphrates and dug, I took the undergarment from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the undergarment was ruined. It was completely useless. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, For as the undergarment clings to the waist of a man, so I made the entire household of Israel and the entire household of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord so that they might be my people for renown, for praise, and for glory. This is one of the saddest phrases of all scripture. But they did not listen. So what's, what did God tell Jeremiah to do? Take off your underwear, your tidy whities go take them to the Euphrates River, dig a hole and bury it, and then come back at a specified period of time, and then pulls them out, and they were gross. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way he's going to put those underwear on. They are just totally ruined and stained and, and messed up. And so the picture here is God is saying, Israel and us, because we are the true Israel, you can have such a close relationship with me. It's as close as the tidy whities that you're wearing right under here. But what you have done, you haven't maintained that closeness. And you've been stained by the world. And you're ruined. The closeness is gone, and it's left. So I don't want us to think that if we struggle and not be close, that we're done, because God can redeem anything. He redeems any, anybody that he draws back to himself. So, so we could do that. As I was reading that, explaining that, you might be thinking, that's why I never read the Old Testament. That's too weird. <laughs> but what a great picture, the closeness that we can have with God. So one of the ways we can further experience the closeness of God that I want to get to is also found in the Old Testament. Now this serves as a little older demographic. So in the mid-60s, there was a song by a group named The Birds that came out called Turn, Turn, Turn. Remember that song? I can hear the three-part harmonies right now, the 12-string Rickenbacker guitar, and the funky glasses that the guys wore with the big helmet hair, and all that. That's right out of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. 
I mean, it's almost word for word scripture. It's so amazing. But for me, for so many years of my life, that song was just, the lyrics were just a great song lyrics. But I didn't realize just a profound reality in that passage. I'll read it from Ecclesiastes 3. To everything there is a season and a time and every purpose under the heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. The music's probably going in your head. A time to plant, a time to pluck. Those plants are time to kill, time to heal, time to break down, time to build up, time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, time to dance, time to cast away stones, time to gather stones, time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. And it goes on and on and on. But actually, this is a principle, because later in verse 11, Exodus, he says, he made everything beautiful in its time. And so this is a principle of Scripture that actually is built and woven into all of creation, and that is season. Each season has a purpose. And this isn't something that I came up with, but I've got a really good book I recommend by Richard Blackaby called The Seasons of God. And it talks about spring, the time of new beginnings. That's when God gives you a dream, and you're excited about that dream. And maybe you're doing something new. Maybe, maybe you're going to high school for the first time. You're a freshman. And you're excited, you may be going out to university, or perhaps you're moving out to Canmore again, and you guys to, 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 to pursue skiing. Or maybe you're, you're going into retirement, or, or just so many springs and things that are new. And, and God gives you a dream, you're excited about that dream, and you want to go for it. You want to build something too, because God creates, and He loves to build and make things. And He made us like Him, and we long to do the same thing. We like to build. And God gives you a, a dream to create and build, and, and it's from Him, and we, and we go with it. And then comes summer. What happens in summer? That's when the work begins. I mean, in a new relationship, it's springtime, and there's infatuation, and you're love. And then in the summer of that relationship, we have to work through some conflicts. We have to work through some issues. But we're, we're pursuing each other, and it's fun to do because we're working hard, and we're getting somewhere. Maybe you're building a new career. Or new, you're in education, and, and you're, you're buckling down. And, and freshman week is over. You bought your books, and now it's time to open them up and study them. <laughs> That's what summer comes. So my dad in his apple orchard, um, spring was beautiful. My, my sister had her wedding during the blooms of, of, of spring. You know, the trees are all blooming. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. But then summer came. We had to mow. We had to spray. We had to keep the pests away. We had to chase the deer. We had to thin the apples, and the trees are too heavy, and, and there's so much work to do. And then comes autumn. Autumn is the peak. That's when we kind of make our most contribution in life. You know, we put the work in during our career. We've worked hard. We've learned things. We've, our skills have, have developed, and we've worked hard. And now autumn comes, and we work smart, and we reap the benefits. So autumn can be disappointing if we haven't invested our lives well in summer, it can be disappointing. Like, oh, I kind of wasted the time. And then comes the winter. Winter is a season of endings. You know, sometimes, or often, yes, it's the rhythm of life. Things need to come to an end. Um, the high school freshman moves on to be big man on campus, the senior. But now it's time to put an end to high school and go on to university. Maybe some of you have retired from your career. That's a time to like, go to a new career. You know, Winston Churchill didn't really get going until he was 70 years old. His whole political career kind of was, was his summer. And his winter, or his, his fall, 
was World War II and got to look at part of his career. And, and, and these seasons can be short or they can be long. They're not just a metaphor for life. Uh, they can be shorter seasons or, or, or long seasons. The winter is, like I said, the season to, to kind of reevaluate, time of hibernation, retrenchment, and reflection. Like for my dad, he worked so hard to bring an apple harvest in, he'd lose 10 to 15 pounds. And he would go down to Arizona where my grandparents lived, and every morning was coffee and donuts. And my, my grandpa had four dairy queens, so he had one blizzard every day. That 10 to 15 pounds came right back up. <laughs> but he needed that rest before it was time to start doing it. The trees would harden down, and then there's some pruning that had, had to go on to redirect the trees a little bit. Because if you just let an apple tree go, it's left. So you've got to prune it and, and direct its growth for the next coming season on the next spring. What did our rich farmer do? He went from summer to fall, back to summer and to fall. And some, you know, worked hard, harvest, worked hard. He never took a winter. He never enjoyed a spring. He never allowed God to give him a fresh new dream. And so he didn't have a winter to reflect and go, hey, wait a minute, maybe my ladder's on the wrong building. Maybe I need to make some adjustments and do some redirecting of, of things. If you'd taken that winter, maybe that would have happened. Could have listened to God. So a couple things about these seasons. They always follow a set order. And how you treat each season sets you up for the next season. Like I said, the dream of spring sets you up for passionately pursuing the work of summer. And that passionate work sets you up for a more bountiful harvest of fall. And then winter, you enjoy much better reflection time because um, you, you had a good, a good autumn. So the thing that's important, too, is we need to have a good, close relationship with God so we can fully maximize each season, to recognize which season you're in and to pull the most out of it that's there. And God has designed us to thrive in every season. You know, it's not like the winter is a bad one. No, winter is a good one. It sets you up for the next one. And we need to, to glean as much out of each season um, that we can. So even in the summer busy times, God sometimes reveals some of his most cherished things to us in the midst of the busyness as we listen and, and seek his heart. Let me close with a story. Um, I've, got, I've got a good South African story here for you. Um, there's a guy named Angus Bookham, and he was a farmer in Zambia. And there was a lot of political unrest in the late 70s. He lost his farm. And so... Um, he had to have a new spring, so in winter was losing the farm must have been tough. And political unrest, you lose your livelihood. Went to South Africa, started a new farm, worked really hard, kind of on the edge of poverty, like I said, a lot of farmers seem to be these these days. Um, but then in 1979, during the midst of that challenge, him and his wife started walking with God. They became they became Christians and really began to walk with God. And then God gave them a springtime dream. A threefold dream. And that dream was number one, to introduce more people to Christ, share the gospel. Number two, have an orphanage on their property, their farm. And number three, have kind of a speaking discipleship teaching ministry. And that's a dream that God gave him. And here's a guy with no theological education. He's been a farmer all of his life. And, and they didn't know what was going to happen. But in 1989, they rented a hall and the preaching ministry began. In 1989, 95, they opened up a home uh, for orphans on their property called House of Lambs. 
And then in 2004, he started a conference called the Mighty Men Conference. And the Mighty Men Conference, the first year, they had 200 men. Angus was the preacher. In 2007, they had 7,400 men. In 2008, they had 60,000 men came to this little farm to hear Angus preach. In 2009, all of South Africa gasped as 200,000 people came to this farm to hear Angus' preaching. Well, didn't end there. In 2010, Angus said, okay, Lord, I think he calls us to do this one more year. But he thought maybe he'd overstretched himself a little bit. So he's praying to God, and the weekend is about to happen, and these guys, would they come, and they bring the lawn chairs and their tents, and they camp out and hear Angus preach. And so he's praying, and he heard a buzzing sound. He thought it was a swarm of insects. He walks over the hill, takes a look, and there's a line of cars coming down the road. That was the buzzing sound that he heard. 600,000 men came to this guy's property. It's way bigger than Woodstock. <laughs> and, and that's how God did some amazing things. Oh, sorry, exaggeration, 300,000. I better follow my script a little better. <laughs> 300,000 men came. He wanted, I want to get this right. But he related that he was just so overwhelmed that God, realizing what God can do in an ordinary life, you know, the, the seasons he experienced were incredible because God can use any one of us, ordinary people that we are, who plants a dream and, and lets us pursue that dream, the hardest of summer and the, the hardest of fall. We want to listen to him, follow him, and most of all, love him. You know, I just want to close with one final thought. That is, God has called us to be a beacon um, for, for what looks like to have a relationship with God to the world. As we saw in Jeremiah, that's where the plan for Israel was, was to have a loving relationship with God, but they blew it. But now he wants us to do that. So there's a book this morning shares that close called the Worship Evangelism, where they talk the concept of if a non-believer comes to that back door, they walk in here and they see us, hearts full of love for God, Worshiping him, that's a tremendous evangelistic tool. And God wants us to be a, a beacon and a light to the world and what that looks like to have a love relationship with him, to make him our present. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for your son. And thank you so much that you died so we could have that relationship. And Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit to to override our sin nature that still exists in many ways, to give us a heart for you. And Lord, I pray in your spirit, in my life and everyone's life here, would just grow us up with a desire for you and a hunger for you. And Lord, I pray that you see to it to bless us with dreams. We would just surrender our lives to those dreams and pursue them with the passion and your strength that you give us. Pray in your name, Lord. Amen.